Welcome One World Podcast listeners. Today we have the very special opportunity to speak with an actor that has starred in more than 20 feature films. From independent films to television movies such as ABC's Crossings and PBS's Glory Enough for All, our guest has tremendous experience in the entertainment field. Currently the co-chair of the Los Angeles chapter of the Climate Reality Project, he is currently striving to create a more green, sustainable future with this new documentary, The Issue with Tissue. Please welcome Michael Zelnicker. Hi, David. Hello, welcome to the One World Podcast. We're really excited to have you. Can you give us a quick introduction? Uh, sure. Uh, as David said, uh, first of all, thank you, David, uh, for inviting me. Uh, great thrill to be here. Um, I'm originally from Montreal. I'm a classically trained actor, spent three years at a traditional conservatory acting school. Uh, when I finished school, I moved to Toronto because that's where English speaking actors go. I was very, very lucky. I got to work in uh, every major theater across Canada, doing everything from Shakespeare to David Mamet. I did some movies. I won a Canadian Academy Award, uh, what we call Genie Awards for a movie called The Terry Fox Story. This allowed me to get my papers to begin working here in the United States. My first audition was in New York City for a movie called Touch and Go, in which I had to play hockey. Lucky for me, growing up in Montreal, the 11th commandment is thou shalt play hockey. So I got the job. It was filming here in Los Angeles. Um, unlike a lot of people from the Northeast, I actually loved Los Angeles. Uh, we have the mountains on one side, the ocean on the other. Um, the air quality um, leaves something to be desired. Um, too many cars, but there's much to love about this place. And soon after I moved here, and as you said, I had a very fortunate career working in the entertainment industry. I got to work with some amazing people do some work I'm very proud of, uh, win awards for my work, travel all over the world. Um, um, I, I was very, very lucky. Um, I'm also a lifelong environmentalist. Um, when I was eight years old, I used to run around the streets of Montreal admonishing people for littering. Um, and I have very long-term memberships in uh, the Sierra Club, uh, Greenpeace. And um, I'm also a big fan of um, Mr. Gore, former Vice President Al Gore, who runs our organization, founded our organization, the Climate Reality Project. So when uh, I had an opportunity to be trained by Mr. Gore uh, two and a half years ago here in Los Angeles in August of 2018, I jumped at the opportunity. Yeah, so that sounds great. So um, about more about your um, involvement in the Los Angeles um, climate Reality Project. Um, so Ms. Tristan told me that uh, you played a very key role in convincing and like talking to the Los Angeles Unified School District about renewable energy. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about this endeavor? Um, so in um, April, May of 2019, we were in a city council meeting, a couple of us uh, advocating around another issue and uh, during the meeting, two of our members, uh, one an LAUSD parent, Sybil Azer, and the other, uh, Kathy Schaefer, a former um, principal in the public school system, um, they stood up and said, we would like to transition LAUSD to clean renewable energy. And of course, uh, we didn't even know at the time that the city council has no regulatory authority over LAUSD. It's an independent um, school district. Um, not regulated by the city. One of the city council members, Paul Krikorian, came over to us afterwards and said, I'd like to help you do this. But we in city council 
don't uh, oversee that, but I do know some of the board members uh, that work for LUSD and I can make an introduction. So this started a process that took us approximately six months, uh, a lot of very, very rigorous meetings with uh, board members and the facilities department at LAUSD. As you can imagine, this would be a, an enormous undertaking. LAUSD is the second largest school district in the country, um, 700,000 students, 28,000 teachers, about 30,000 support staff, 1,100 schools. Um, it is, LAUSD is the largest single emitter of greenhouse gases in uh, the County of Los Angeles. So after this long process that we engaged, um, there was a board meeting on December 3rd, 2019, and the board voted unanimously in favor of the resolution that we uh, wrote that uh, compels them to transition all of their electricity to clean renewable sources by 2030 and all other energy, including gas boilers, HVAC, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning, transportation by 2040. This is a timeline that is more ambitious, more aggressive than the city, county, or state. This also led me to be able to go to LACCD, the community college district, which is the largest community college district in the country, and persuade them to pass a similar resolution. We've also had success with several other smaller private schools. So it became a paradigm for us, a kind of example that we could use out in the community for other school districts to do the same. Yeah, that sounds incredible. Um, yeah, renewable energy is a growing topic these days. Like, um, like even just like on Twitter or like in the news, uh, more people are talking about renewable energy. So it's great that you um, took that initiative. Um, so now we're going to transition to talk about your documentary. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the issue with tissue? So uh, last April, uh, a little more than a month into the pandemic, uh, just at the time when everybody was hoarding toilet paper, across my screen came an NRDC, Natural Resources Defense Council campaign, um, illuminating the fact that Procter & Gamble and other large uh, toilet paper manufacturers were sourcing their pulp and paper fiber from old growth, large intact forest landscapes across the Canadian boreal. Um, this inspired me to begin to do some research. I'm Canadian by birth. I used to summer camp um, about 100 miles north of Montreal on what I now know is the southern edge of the boreal in the province of Quebec. And as a young kid, at eight years old, I really hated summer camp. Um, I was short and I didn't really get along with anybody. I was a troubled little kid and as a result, I was always in trouble. Um, the one thing that gave me comfort, the one thing that soothed me was as I walked from the bunks down to the dining hall, there was a view out as far as the eye could see, right to the edges of the horizon. All you could see was trees. And this view of trees for some reason comforted me and it forged in me a, a, a deep love, a, it bonded in me a deep love with trees. So much so that today when I'm in a forest, I feel like I'm with long lost family. So when I learned that these old growth, large intact forest landscapes across, across the Canadian boreal were being clear cut so that we can wipe our bums with softer, more 
plush toilet paper, I was so outraged that it inspired me to do research. And I started reaching out to people who live in the boreal, um, people who are working on the boreal. And I discovered that more than 600 First Nations live on the boreal. So I soon, it soon became clear to me that any story about the boreal has to place First Nations, indigenous people who have lived there for thousands of years at the front and center of that story. But I also learned that the boreal holds more carbon than any other terrestrial landscape on the planet. And as we're facing the implications of global warming and climate change, more and more of that carbon that is stored primarily in the soil in what are called the peatlands, because um, Northern Canada, this part of Northern Canada, of course, is much colder. So much of that carbon is ancient carbon that has been stored there for years and years and years, thousands of years. As global warming and climate change continue to take hold, that carbon becomes more and more susceptible to being released into the atmosphere. So what is now the largest carbon bank in terms of any terrestrial landscape on the planet? No other, a lot of people think the Amazon holds more carbon or there is no terrestrial landscape on the planet that holds more carbon than the boreal, than the Canadian boreal. And once I learned that, I also learned that 2 billion birds nest in the boreal every year. 5 billion then migrate south. So the songbirds that we listen to in our backyards, those birds that we love, we take for granted. They literally nest. The boreal is the nesting ground for North American birds. So all of these things, I started thinking, wow, um, nobody even knows anything about this. The boreal is a completely untold, unknown story. And given what I spent most of my life doing, at a certain point, I felt like, you know, there's a saying, uh, I will paraphrase the saying, the saying though um, that, that applied to this situation for me was, if not me, then who? And if not now, then when? So even though we were in the middle of COVID, at a certain point in August of 2020, I turned to my wife and said, I feel like I have to go do this. So I flew up to Vancouver, I self-quarantined for two weeks, and then I began a 42-day journey right across Canada from coast to coast, literally all the way up into northeastern Quebec on the George River at an Innu gathering that I was invited to. I interviewed more than 50 First Nations elders and leaders, scientists, academics, activists, all of whom opened their hearts and shared their stories with me. Yeah, so uh, carbon sequestration definitely plays a huge role in mitigating the effects of climate change. And um, I particularly didn't know that the um, Canadian boreal forests are the biggest carbon sink on earth. So it's really great that you're illuminating this statistic and fact to um, a lot of the people that can also join this initiative with you. Um, Imagine, David, you know, what we're risking now because these areas are warming and drying. We are risking, um, you know, we're seeing now everywhere. We certainly see it in California and all along the West Coast last year. The incidence of fire is increasing because of global warming. Um, across the boreal, fire is a part of the natural cycle, part of the natural regime of boreal forests. In fact, 
there are certain pine trees that cannot grow without the heat that is applied to the serotonous cones that pine trees, they require, they, they need that heat in order to regenerate. But what's happening is the incidence of fire is increasing in number and scope and size. And so what used to be considered a natural disturbance because of global warming um, is turning into a man-made disturbance. And what we're seeing now is all of this ancient carbon that has been locked in the soil for thousands of years is being released into the atmosphere, risking what climate scientists tell us are those feedback loops that we have to be most concerned about. Yeah, I definitely wonder um, if there's more like of a scientific impact in the way that, um, because as you said, like these carbons, um, like molecules have been locked in like the soil and like the um, in the trees for so long, like if there's a an effect that they can have um, just like on the chemical basis, like like do they contribute like more to climate change or um, to like lesser degree or like because um, they've been locked away for such a long time, like we might not even know um, if they're like a different like isotope of carbon or anything like that. So I definitely think it's much better to just like stay on the safer side with these type of things too. Um, so you well, the, well, but the biggest risk is not that it's a different isotope. It is carbon dioxide and it is methane and it is NOx. But um, uh, you know there is a very high percentage of methane, and of course methane is a much more intense greenhouse gas. But the real risk is that this carbon has been stored in the soil for thousands of years. It is a carbon bank. And as we continue to disturb it through logging, through mining, through oil and gas, and through global warming and climate change, more of it is being released into the atmosphere. More carbon dioxide, more methane into the atmosphere, more warming, more warming, more of this carbon degrades. It becomes a feedback loop. So it's not so much that it's a different isotope as this carbon that has been stored reliably for thousands of years is now being released into the atmosphere. Yeah, so uh, you also mentioned uh, your experience uh, just like growing up and just uh, looking at these forests, which is definitely an experience I don't have uh, as I live in a suburb in Southern California. But um, so what exactly, and I think you touched on this, like, um, but what exactly inspired this documentary? Um, and do you think you could elucidate some of the um, stories of like the indigenous people that you cover in your documentary? Um, well, again, what inspired it um, primarily was my love of forests, my learning that these large intact forest landscapes, the largest remaining intact forest landscapes on the planet, which have much higher value than fragmented forest landscapes. Intact forest landscapes we're learning have much higher value for biodiversity and for their ecosystem services in terms of clean air, clean water, cooling, all things that we need to be allowing these ecosystems to contribute to the safety, the sustainability of our planet. Um, and it just seemed to me that this may be among the most outrageous examples of what's gone wrong with us. What I learned from indigenous people um, is so um, 
I mean, it, it, there's there's so much to it. I, I I couldn't cover it in a conversation, but I'll, I'll I'll just try with a couple of things. One of the things that Elder Dave Corshane said to me um, was, "Land we do to ourselves." What I learned from the indigenous people that I spend time with was they don't see themselves as separate from the land or from the other animals, the other species that make up Mother Earth's creation. They see themselves as part of a circle of life. Whereas we in the West, we in settler colonial culture, tend to see ourselves in a pyramid at the top of that pyramid and that the resources are there for us to exploit simply for our comfort, for our purposes. Whereas indigenous people see themselves as a member of a larger family. Even as they harvest caribou, because some of the First Nations across Canada, they call themselves caribou people because their very survival depends on the caribou. But when they harvest a caribou, they take only what they need. They give thanks for what they take with an eye towards seven generations ahead. They feel a sense of responsibility, a sense of stewardship responsibility to the land because they know that the only way that Mother Earth can continue to take care of us is if we take care of Mother Earth. And what we see happening right now, David, is that we have poured so much carbon into the atmosphere, we have encroached in natural wild spaces with so much industrial development that we are leaving Mother Earth's ability to take care of us in jeopardy. And unless we begin to take back the stewardship responsibilities that indigenous people have embodied for thousands of years, unless we start to take that stewardship responsibility seriously, the one that says, in order for Mother Earth to take care of us, we must take care of her. Yeah, I definitely think that's a powerful message that just definitely does get a little bit overlooked in, um, yeah, as you said, like Western culture. Um, so you know, David, credo amongst um, indigenous people, as I said, is take only what you need, give thanks for what you take with an eye towards seven generations in front. Here in the West, our credo is a lot is good, more is better, and too much is just right. Yeah, like I definitely see that with- You can see there's a divergence of belief yeah. system there. Like with the consumerism culture, um, like even in like California, like I feel like definitely in California, um, it's just that belief that more is better. Um, yeah. And I don't believe that that's who we are by nature, David. I feel that we have been sold a bill of goods by the corporatization of our economy because the only people who benefit from that kind of mentality, from this hyper-consumerism, this more, 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 the only people who benefit are the people who run those corporations, who profit even as Mother Earth continues to be degraded by their activities. We have been brainwashed into believing that this is what we must embody in order to feel like we're successful or like we are 
handsome or like we're beautiful or like, you know, we're desirable. I mean, you watch commercials, they're all about inspiring us either by fear, you know, we're not good enough if we don't buy the product or by we'll be loved if we do buy the product. So, you know, we've been brainwashed into believing that a lot is good, more is better and too much is just right. And we're gonna have to trade in that belief system and start to, one of the reasons we believe that conservation, especially around the boreal, because the boreal has been home to First Nations, to indigenous peoples for thousands of years, that conservation, that protection of these sacred lands must be led by indigenous people is because they've proved over thousands of years that they know how to steward these lands. Yeah, um, so uh, like as you were in Canada uh, collecting information and data and research for your, uh, for your documentary, did you um, like encounter any like large obstacles with the pandemic? Um, like were certain opportunities or information unavailable? Well, I'm, you know, traveling up to Canada, even, you know, I have dual citizenship. I'm both American and Canadian, but um, I did have to self-quarantine for 14 days in Vancouver uh, in August. Um, I recruited one of my former students uh, from one of the film schools that I taught at um, who lives in Toronto and he flew out to Vancouver and then the two of us got into uh, a vehicle and literally drove north and west. The good news is, is the incidence of COVID in Canada is much, much lower than it is in the United States. And we were also driving through an area of Canada, Northern Canada in the Boreal, something like 90% of the Canadian population lives within a 100 mile radius of the US border. So we were way far north of that. So we were in many places where there was very little COVID. Um, many of the First Nations communities that we were invited to visit were shut down. So we had to get special permission from the people that we met with. Uh, all the people that I met with, I interviewed beforehand uh, on Zoom. So all of them knew me, all of them, you know, felt secure and confident in, in spending time with me. Um, we had taken the time to um, sort of pre-interview everybody, maybe that's not the right way of saying it, to, to, to allow them to get to know me a little bit so that they would feel um, comfortable opening their hearts the way they did and sharing their stories the way they did. Because even though I have a connection to the forest, uh, to the boreal forest, um, this is not my story. And, um, you know, anyone who sees the documentary will see uh, it is the story of uh, the Indigenous people who I had the honor to, to meet with and sit with and interview and the scientists and academics and, and activists who are involved with the Boreal story. Yeah, so um, as we transition towards like the end of our interview, um, where can our One World Podcast listeners um, find the documentary? Uh, that's an excellent question, David. Um, I, I don't know yet. Um, this is not going to be only a feature film. There is so much, I, I, I have more than 100 hours of interview footage and, and many, many hours of landscape and wildlife footage. So um, we, we have a lot of footage. Um, I, I've, I've now cataloged 
oh, about 95% of the footage. I still have a little ways to go. And even as I'm beginning to edit into a story timeline, I see that there is probably going to be about six hours of very compelling story footage. Um, so this is probably gonna end up being a, some kind of documentary series. And I'm not sure what, what kind of format it's gonna follow right now. I'm starting to think it will be uh, three episodes of two hours each. And where people will have a chance to see it will depend on who I sell it to. But we're fortunate we have lots of support already. Um, there are distributors already interested in the project. So uh, our intention is simply to get as many eyeballs as many eyeballs on this as possible because we really hope to forge some change, um, not only around the issue with tissue, not only around allowing people to understand that their only option is not purchasing toilet paper and other throwaway disposable paper products that are being sourced from old growth, large intact forest landscapes like the boreal recyclable toilet paper or toilet paper that is sourced from bamboo or other much more regenerative products. Those are perfectly good products. So we're not only hoping to affect some behavior around that, but what I've come to understand, David, is the larger systemic issue that we are going to have to confront is the issue of disconnection. We have so disconnected from each other we have so disconnected from the land and from the other creatures that inhabit Mother Earth's creation that we go to a McDonald's, for instance, and eat a hamburger without any connection to the animal that is so inhumanely treated at an industrial farm. We have no connection to the animal that is slaughtered in order for us to have this hamburger. We have no connection to the tree that is logged that is then pulped, literally pulped, so that we can wipe our bums with softer, more plush toilet paper. We've lost connection. Um, we've lost connection with the creatures that are being sacrificed for our convenience. And unless we face that disconnection, all the work we're doing around the, what I call cosmetic symptomatology of the climate crisis, we will not be able to solve it. There's a wonderful research who I'm going to interview, actually. She had a, a great interview, and maybe you can link your audience to it. Uh, it's called The Social Life of Forests. It was in the New York Times in December. Her name is Suzanne Simard, Dr. Suzanne Simard. And she's been doing research about what is called mycorrhiza, mycorrhizal networks. These are the underground subterranean networks that exist in forests showing us that forests actually operate in a cooperative, collaborative, symbiotic um, relationship. This is the way they operate. And when you think that trees and forests have been on Mother Earth for 385 million years, and we humans have only been here for a few thousand years, I would have to say that trees have something to teach us about longevity. They have something to teach us about sustainability. One of the elders I met with, Elder Dave Porter said to me, when we're, when we're in a forest, we're with our ancestors. We're, we're with our grandfathers and our grandmothers. They are talking to us. They are telling us stories of life. 
The question is, are we listening? So when I combine that scientific research of Dr. Suzanne Simard, who teaches us through her research in the forest, that these forests thrive through connection, through cooperation, not through competition or survival of the fittest, like Darwinian theory would have us believe. They exist and thrive through cooperation. And God knows they've been here a lot longer than us. So maybe what they're trying to teach us is our way forward is through cooperation, through symbiotic relationship, through relationship of cooperation, serving the greater good. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. Um, yeah, just like even in our own country right now, there's so much like polarization um, that there, that cooperation just seems totally out of the picture. And I definitely don't think that's the way we should approach anything. Um, like, especially we have to build that uh, mindset, like as a society, as a culture, that um, things can be accomplished together instead of apart. Um, yes. As indigenous people said, you know, we are all one family. We are all one family. We're all in this together. We only have, as you say, one earth, right? And one world. And that one world is something we're going to have to learn to live together on. Yes. Um, so just like in that vein, um, what can our One World podcast listeners do to help? Um, just like in your initiative against um, initiative regarding the boreal trees of Canada? Well, very specifically, um, as we purchase our paper products and our wood products, we can purchase products that are FSC certified, F Frank, S Sam, C Charlie. FSC is a certification system that ensures that indigenous rights are protected endangered species like caribou are protected. They insist that logging companies source their, practice their forestry in areas of forests that are not threatened, that are not, not large intact forest landscapes. There are certain um, regulations that they have to meet in order to get that FSC stamp. But when it comes to toilet paper specifically, I can tell you, I use toilet paper that is sourced from 100% post-consumer recycled material, and it works perfectly well. Um, so that's a simple way that people um, stop using throwaway disposable products. This planet is not filled with unlimited resources. The resources that we are tapping into are limited. Um, if you can afford to, I mean, I've had solar panels for six years on my house. Great thing is, once you're drawing your energy from solar, you're no longer paying for your electricity because the sun gives itself to us for free. This is why indigenous people give thanks to the sun. Um, live a more eco-friendly life. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that's great advice for anyone, but um, hopefully I think that's a great takeaway from my interview today. Um, 
I had an amazing time tonight. I definitely think I learned a lot about the boreal trees of Canada um, and your overall initiative with the issue with tissue. Um, do you have any closing thoughts for us? Uh, I just want to say thank you for inviting me to, to share um, some of my thoughts with you. And thank you for doing this, David. This is such a great thing that you're doing. Um, when you were asking me for suggestions for um, what people could do, you're a great shining example of what people can do. Spread the word. We are facing a climate crisis. And the only way we're going to solve it is if we come together, embrace that reality, and then start to take action to mitigate it. Thanks again for having me, David. Of course. Thank you so much.